The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. I'm your host, Mike Slatman. I've been a fire investigator for over 45 years, and I was fortunate enough to be the International Association of Arson Investigator President. I'm a past president now. During my career, I've been very fortunate to have met the leading researchers, authors, and fire investigators throughout the world. Today, we we have a, a, a wonderful researcher and consultant, Dr. John DeHaan. And I'm also very fortunate to have a co-host, Donna Ingram. Hello there. This is Donna. Having spent almost 30 years in insurance claims, I thought this show was a great idea. Uh, We want to inform you about fire safety, hopefully help prevent intentionally set fires, also known as arson. Uh, We're usually live, however, Today is pre-recorded. You won't be able to call in today, but during our live shows, you can call in and or send questions to us via email at connect at speakingoffire.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T at speakingoffire.com. Thank you, Donna. Uh, Dr. Dahan, you have been a criminalist for over 47 years. Could you explain to everyone what a criminalist is? Sure. Uh, criminalist is a uh, sometimes known as a forensic scientist. Um, have a degree in uh, hard hard science like physics or chemistry or biology, and that information knowledge is applied to the analysis, interpretation of uh, physical evidence, and the reconstruction of events, usually uh, crimes. Right. And how did you get involved in that originally? Uh, I, I actually got involved because I got bored with physics. Um, uh, I was studying high-energy physics, uh, small particle uh, research, and uh, I thought this was kind of pointless. And I just lucked into meeting the professor of criminalistics at uh, the University of Illinois at Chicago Circle. And uh, he had a background in chemistry and physics, and we struck it off, and I realized that this was a discipline that I could uh, understand. I, could, I had the talent and the knowledge to uh, to do something with it, and most importantly, I could I could help make it a kind of a better world by finding the solution to problems in the criminal field. Oh, that's awesome! And how did you yourself get involved in fire investigations? Well, my first job was as a general criminalist in a county laboratory here in California, and one of my jobs was to analyze fire debris from investigators uh, uh, doing scenes and bringing it to the laboratory. And I, I came up with issues, questions about uh, their evidence and and how this worked into their case, and they didn't seem to have the answers. And I thought, well, that's odd. You're the expert. You know, why don't you know these things about the chemistry and physics of, of fire and combustion and things like that? So I, I started getting more and more involved with uh, investigators, field investigators. And then when I went to work for the state of California, my position was actually partially funded by the state fire marshal. And my first day, they sent me out to work with the arson and bomb unit who was doing some live fire training. So my first day as a state employee, I spent making Molotov cocktails and things like that. And I thought, hey, now this I can really get into. And (laughs) and it was all kind of uphill from there. I ended up uh, helping, uh, well, I probably observed 
five or six hundred structure fires and a couple hundred vehicle fires and, and uh, a whole variety of uh, uh, tests of uh, all kinds of materials, including human bodies, over the past 45 years and I've accumulated quite a bit of first-hand knowledge. Now I think I have the answers to some of the questions I had 45 years ago. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you, I, I really appreciate that. Um, when you worked at a law enforcement at, at the laboratory and you're a forensic science uh, of scientist, um, didn't you? Did you ever find law enforcement uh, people trying to um, influence you to support their investigative con- conclusions? I've been really uh, lucky. Uh, I've had a few investigators that were pretty disappointed uh, or frustrated <laughs> when I couldn't come up with information to support their uh, reconstruction <clears throat> or their mm-hmm. hypothesis. But I've never worked for an agency where there was pressure to come up with a particular answer. Uh, we were always considered a completely independent function. And uh, if the science was good, um, the uh, the answer, you know, basically... Uh, stood until uh, you know somebody found additional information and we could test it further, and uh, that's been really good. But I've always been completely independent of the law enforcement function, even though my check was officially you know signed or provided by that agency. Well, and I see also you've been involved in a number of appeal cases involving arson and murder, some of which are your own. What is yes. that like? <laughs> well, you know, um, you kind of expect every time you sign a report that, well, there's bound to be somebody on the other side that's going to find, a, you know, a, a different opinion. And uh, that's part of the testing process is how good is my science? You know, will somebody else come up with a better answer or a different answer based on the same uh, on the same knowledge and data and things like that? Um, some of the interesting ones, though, are the, are the appeal cases now that are coming to light of uh, some 20 years, uh, or in some cases more, uh, from the date of the original conviction. And we were, um, we're charged now with seeing what the science was like back in the 90s or, or 80s. And as a result, we see some really major uh, miscalculations, uh, misconceptions, based on the um, limited knowledge that the investigators had back then. And as a result, they had ended up with wrongful convictions. And so now we're trying to Trying to trying to fix some of those, and those are those are really interesting and very challenging because the prosecution system, um, the rest of the criminal justice system, isn't really happy when we come along and say, "Oh, by the way, this evidence wasn't reliable, and this person, you know, can't be proven to be uh, responsible for this fire, or this death." And um, it's amazing how reluctant they can be sometimes to change their opinions. When the, even when the science says no way. Yeah, we realize that um, that physics hasn't changed. However, there's been a lot more fire research over the years, isn't there, Doctor? Um, and also, your professional career, I'm sure that you've seen all these changes. Um, what do you, what what are you the most proud of of, of your work, sir? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of uh, basically puncturing some of the old mythologies that were so prevalent when I first got involved. And when I, as I said, when I started talking to fire investigators back in the 70s, well, why did you collect this particular sample? And they said, well, because the pattern told me that there was something burning there. Well, there's no physical evidence of, of anything burning there. Well, then it must be you that's wrong. And now we know today the complexity of fully involved what are called post-flash over fires in rooms that create patterns, not based on where the fuel was, but where the ventilation was. So we're seeing a whole new range of, of interpretations and, and um, knowledge base that the fire investigator has to, has to bring in to evaluate these patterns to establish, for instance, even where the fire started, let alone how it started. Some of those miscalculations or misconceptions were on basic things like what is the temperature of a flame or the temperature of a fire <clears throat> and why the 
temperature of flammable liquids uh, isn't any different than the temperature of burning wood and things like that. Um, uh, effects on materials. Why do some materials melt at, at different temperatures and things like that? And, and those were really fundamental. And we challenged all of that with actual laboratory tests and managed to correct those misconceptions over a period of years it took. And I'm very familiar with your work, and and you uh, took over writing from Dr. Paul Kirk, who is now deceased. You you um, took over writing Kirk's fire investigations to to help uh, dissuade those those investigators from making mistakes. So, can you tell us a little bit of how you got uh, going on that? Yes, the uh, original book, Fire Investigation, was written by Dr. Paul Kirk, who was a pioneer of modern criminalistics at the University of California at Berkeley. And that book was actually the very first one actually written by a, fire, uh, by a scientist about fire investigation. All the others had been written by firefighters or police detectives or insurance investigators. And so it was very uh, significant landmark text. That book was published in 1979. Uh, sorry, 1969, and Dr. Kirk died in 1980, and uh, I was asked in 1981 to pick it up and uh, revise it as extensively as I wanted and relaunch it as uh, Kirk's Fire Investigation with me as the author, and that's what I did. It's now been through six editions under my authorship, and uh, that's actually been the main way of getting this new knowledge out there. Uh, because it's used very widely in college-level or professional-level training courses, and fire investigators are now exposed to the facts of temperatures and intensities and ignition processes and things like that. So that's made a, a big difference in fire investigation, but it's taken 30 years. Yeah, I understand. Um, there, is there another edition coming out? Uh, there is one in preparation. We don't know when the uh, preparation date or release date is going to be. And earlier, you were talking about uh, flames versus other sources of heat. And I was thinking with holidays upon us, uh, how talk to us about candle fires. <laughs> Yes, candle fires are making a resurgence uh, in uh, especially American uh, households because people are no longer satisfied with having a couple of candles on the table for a special dinner. Now they're encouraged to light dozens of them and leave them burning for for whatever whatever aesthetic reasons they have. And uh, each candle represents a potential ignition risk. The temperatures of a candle are very high for the portion of the candle flame is actually at 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And, but they're small, so that people overlook them uh, very easily. Uh, but a candle flame is capable of igniting just about any material that it comes in contact with, or even near contact. And uh, we've grown careless about them, and uh, especially with plastics around. And plastics, if they're used close by, a candle flame can melt or distort. And now the candle flame isn't where it, it's supposed to be or where it was thought to be. And uh, we've had instances of candles melting their way through plastic housings of radios and televisions, and then they fall burning into the inside, and suddenly the, the owner is aware of there's the, the, the radio or the television sets on fire. And then you have a plastic, and now you have a big plastic fire and a disaster uh, in the process. And so, yeah, candles are a, an issue uh, because people, I think, have lost familiarity with the process and, um, and they, they treat them far too casually. I see. And then, well, and this is, uh, this is our Christmas show, so let's talk for a moment, <laughs> Doctor, about Christmas trees. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's another big risk. We don't have candles so much associated with Christmas trees, but we still have a lot of the wrong kind of Christmas trees out there, um, and people don't keep them watered. Uh, they don't keep them fresh. Some some brands like Douglas Firs, uh, you just can't keep fresh, so they're only they're only safe for a few days uh, after after harvest or installation, and they dry out. And now you have a very finely divided fuel. 
uh, which is very easily ignitable by even a brief source of <clears throat> heat contact. And uh, <clears throat> once ignited, a six-foot-tall Christmas dry Scotch pine Christmas tree is the equivalent of two gallons of gasoline poured in the room. That's how big the fire is. And it's almost that fast. It takes, oh, 15 seconds to go from ignition of one lower branch of a Scotch pine Christmas tree to the thing generating a 12-foot-high flame in the corner. And uh, it burns out just as rapidly. Within a couple of minutes, there's nothing left. But that means that enormous fire has has filled the room with flames and hot gases uh, to the point where you're running uh, a risk of, uh, of ignition of everything else in the room. And yes. uh, they're pretty pretty scary. So the important thing is for people to watch um, how long they keep trees and keep them watered. Uh, and when they start drying out and losing their needles, get them out of the house. Um, and and luckily we're seeing an influx of, of uh, unfortunately, more expensive trees like noble firs and things like that that will retain their moisture. And uh, even weeks after, after harvest are still uh, very resistant to flame ignition. Yes, well, thank you for, for explaining that. There's an NFPA... Um uh, recently released a video, which we're going to hopefully put on our website, uh, that will uh, show the difference between a, uh, a dry and a uh, properly watered uh, Christmas tree. Um, Good. And, Doctor, uh, you, you've been involved in many death investigations, and uh, I'd like you to just for take a couple minutes, because we only have a few minutes left, to talk about death investigations, but to try and dispel the uh, spontaneous human combustion idea, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the more uh, resilient uh, uh, mythologies that, we, that uh, we have to deal with, and, and it stems from cases in which a, a, a body very badly burned is found in a room um, where there's virtually no other fire damage. There's some signs of heat, but there's, there's, uh, the, the rest of the room contents haven't caught on fire. And that was a big mystery. And people used to think, well, gee, it takes a, a, um, the intensity and duration of a, an incinerator or a um, crematorium to burn a body like this. How could this possibly happen? And therefore, you know, we've invoked all kinds of things from stray radiant energy to, to you know, um, comets and all kinds of stuff. And it turns out it's very simple. It's a matter of understanding the fuels that are present and the ignition sources that are present. It turns out, and we've demonstrated this in a number of actual tests with uh, human cadavers, in which they're, they're, uh, they, there's a simple form of ignition, just a dropped match on clothing or bedding that is easily ignited, and the, the flames then attack the body, the skin shrinks or peels away very quickly after five minutes or so of exposure, and that exposes the subcutaneous body fat. And the subcutaneous body fat is a very good fuel, not quite as good as, as candle wax itself or, or um, diesel fuel, but it's very good fuel. And once it melts, it forms uh, basically an ignitable liquid. And if that ignitable liquid is exposed to a wick-like material, like a porous charred cloth or porous charred wood or, um, or clothing or bedding or anything like that, that can feed, feed the um, material in just like the wick of a um, candle, the process can spread and sustain itself. And we've had bodies under our, some of our test protocols all by themselves burn for six or seven hours. And over a period of that period of time, the destruction can be very substantial, including uh, destruction of the skeletal materials and things like that. But most importantly, the size of that fire is so limited, it's like having a small wastebasket fire in that room 
Well, if you I, can imagine having a small wastebasket burning in the in the middle of a room, you realize, well, that isn't going to set the rest of the room on fire. It's not going to affect the the uh, the ceiling or or the furnishings or the carpet or anything like that. It's going to make the room kind of stuffy. There's enough leakage coming around typical doors and windows that even if the doors and windows are closed, I'm going to be able to support the burning of that um, that uh, wastebasket. Well, the same yes. thing holds for a fire. Yes, sir, and and thank you for for that. That pretty much dispels the idea of anyone walking down the street and bursting into flames. Is that correct? There's, n- there's never been a recorded <laughs> instance of that. That's right. Not yet. And, uh, okay. In fact, yeah, that's that's one of the that's one of the landmarks of these kinds of cases. The people are not seen for hours, and then they're discovered very badly burned in their rooms, and that's part of the. Part of the process is it takes a number of hours for this process to happen to in, in, uh, incorporate great damage to the body. Uh, and if the person's not seen or they're living alone and, and nobody discovers it until actually the fire, in most cases, has burned itself out, then you have this big mystery of how this can happen. Well, we, it's no longer a mystery. We know exactly what's happening. Well, thank you for for solving that uh, mystery for us. Uh, we really appreciate your being. You've given us such great information, and uh, and now we're going to have to make take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Dr. David Ikove, a former uh, FBI uh, profiler and an educator. So please come back to Speaking of Fire. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. If you are seeking more confidence, it is time to feel good naked. That's the name of the radio show hosted by Laura Redmond. Each week, Laura and her guest experts are here to help you be you. In order to be truly successful and happy, you need self-confidence, self-love, and self-respect. Feel Good Naked Radio will teach you how to embrace these qualities and make your life more fulfilling and meaningful. Listen live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be proud of who you really are from the inside out. Fireanalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact fireanalysis.net. That's fireanalysis.net. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for listening. We'd like to welcome Dr. David Icove, renowned author, educator, and retired criminal profiler for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Dr. Icove, can you give us a brief overview of your career? Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, uh, presently, I'm the Underwriters Laboratories uh, Professor of Practice at the University of Tennessee in the College of Engineering. 
Uh, I retired uh, from the U.S. Tennessee Valley Authority Police Department in uh, 2005. I was the assistant uh, chief of police for uh, the Criminal Investigations Division. Uh, Previously, I had worked as a uh, criminal profiler for the FBI for uh, a little over nine years. And before that, uh, for the Knoxville Police Department, where I oversaw the uh, arson task force, which was made up of uh, investigators from the, both the police and the fire departments. And uh, before that, I'd worked as an investigator for the, both the Tennessee and Ohio State Fire Marshal's offices. Um, uh, as far as education, I'm a graduate fire protection engineer. Uh, which puts me in a unique position to uh, to really get a true appreciation for the uh, for the field of fire investigation, and I'm uh, very happy to uh, to be here and, and share some of my experiences with you today. Well, thank you for being here. Um, uh, could you explain to our listeners what fire investigation is? Well, fire investigation uh, typically in the past had been uh, uh, the in- the uh, determination of uh, of the origin and cause of fires, but most recently, uh, since the advent of uh, NFPA 921, the Guide for Fire and Explosion Investigations, they've added uh, that the fire investigator only only after determining the origin and cause should also concentrate on the development of the fire or explosion uh, uh, after that after that uh, de- determination has been made. So it's now a broad reaching field that requires a great deal of depth and in understanding, especially in the area of fire dynamics. Well, we hear varying estimates as to the prevalence of arson in the United States. Based on your experience and research, what is your estimate as to the national percentage rate of intentionally set fires? Um, based on a uh, on a uh, on an audit that uh, that uh, was done by a study uh, by the University of Tennessee and uh, Scripps Howard uh, News Service, uh, we audited 10 cities as well as looked at the fire incident data uh, throughout the country and uh, came to the conclusion that arson in the United States is significantly underreported due to several factors. But our estimate is is that basically we've got jurisdictions reporting anywhere from uh, 40 to 45 percent of their total uh, fires as being arson, and that includes both structural and uh, motor vehicle fires. And that differs from uh, some of the uh, typical national estimates that uh, range anywhere from uh, from 5 to 7 percent. Well, during your career with the FBI, you were a profiler, and uh, you did a, 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 all kinds of research into into arsonists, did you not? And, and uh, weren't, what and you, their motives and why? Why do people commit arson anyway, Doc? Well, th- that was an essential question that we had to ask, and uh, and it came down to a, a situation where, uh, based on um, on a on a research project with the Prince George's County Fire Department, who ended up debriefing uh, arsonists uh, after they uh, after they admitted to having set fires, uh, we used that data. As well as data that we uh, that we uh, uh, receive from uh, prison interviews and some of the peer-reviewed studies, to come up with uh, uh, the present-day classification system for uh, motives uh, for for fires, and for basically for why individuals set fires, we came up with six um, uh, reported uh, classifications, and and they're supported by. Uh, both statistical and anecdotal research, uh, and it's also uh, embodied right now in NFPA 921. Uh, we found that there were six uh, substantial classifications uh, for uh, the motives for why individuals set fire, and they were uh, vandalism, excitement, revenge, uh, crime concealment, arson for profit, and uh, extremism or terrorism. So those were the six uh, major classifications that we came across. These classifications are, are recognized uh, by the FBI and are used uh, interchangeably with uh, NFPA 921 and uh, and basically stand on, on the basis for what they have. Yeah, well, and juveniles set a lot of uh, fires also. What do you think their primary motivation is? Uh, ju- 
basically the juveniles, when we looked at the classifications, um, and, and it's also backed up by the FBI uh, Uniform Crime Reporting System, uh, juveniles are, are responsible for basically in the arrests of all individuals, uh, 50% uh, on the average uh, uh, yearly of, of people arrested for arson in the United States are under the age of 18. Uh, but when we looked at the uh, at the targets and the and the classification, uh, juveniles are most likely uh, show up in, into the vandalism motivated arson category. That is, uh, uh, in, that is juveniles who set fires uh, for malicious or mischievous fire setting and resulting in damage to property. And those types of targets that we looked at that uh, that were unique to vandalism motivated arson had to do with educational facilities, residential, and vegetation. And vegetation, we include uh, grass, uh, brush, and uh, wildlands. Well, you know, um, yes, we find that uh, the primary motivation in the Midwest also. Um, Now, I think it would be interesting to to our listeners for you to describe now how you, you do fire modeling, doctor, and uh, can you tell can you tell us a little bit about how you can do something now with technology that can actually uh, model the fire? Well, that's a good question. The fire models uh, that have been developed uh, for use in in investigations are broken into uh, basically probabilistic and determination uh, deterministic uh, and they're either uh, estimating or predicting the outcome or they're looking for mathematical relationships. But they emulate the impact of fires and not the physical fire itself. But the most important thing about the use of fire models is that they help in hypothesis testing. That is uh, the basis of the scientific method of what may have occurred and what may not have occurred. But uh, modeling can be best applied in forensic uh, fire investigations for interpreting, uh, for example, the ignition growth and development of the fire as well as the damage. Uh, They can also help in reviewing and interpreting the effectiveness of uh, fire protection codes, uh, standards, specifications, and design. Uh, They can also help uh, the model in, in determining the effectiveness of active and passive fire suppression. Uh, that is, uh, things like uh, 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 smoke alarm activations, sprinkler system activations. Also, um, in an in a area that uh, is not as commonly thought about, they can uh, computer fire models can help assess the uh, and evaluate human tenability in fires. That is, the ability for an individual to withstand uh, uh, the heat and uh, Byproducts of combustion from a from a fire, but the bottom line is is that it fire modeling, uh, when appropriately applied, is best used in uh, determining hypotheses uh, for a fire, and uh, especially when you have competing hypotheses. I see. And uh, okay, well, uh, goodness, I, I'll tell you what, uh, it's it's going to be very difficult to um, to continue to be an arsonist in this country, isn't it? I would hope so. <laughs> okay. Well, that also uh, we also have something else that's uh, helping us out. The uh, the National um, Academy of Science report uh, came out, and uh, it it actually has pointed out some things that fire investigators need to do. What do you think? What do you think about that? What's what's the impact of that report? Well, there's uh, several impacts, and uh, and and to be concise. Uh, uh, one of the most important areas is the uh, the fact that fire investigators must be uh, knowledgeable about the guidelines, the standards, and expert treatises in the field, uh, especially on how they apply them. Uh, these these are things like uh, these are documents like uh, NFPA 921, NFPA 1033, uh, Kirk's Fire Investigation, and and other expert treatises. And those should be on every bookshelf of every investigator in the country. In fact, they should not only not only they should not remain on the bookshelf, but they should be in the hands and uh, and be carried by by these investigators. Uh, so that's the first area is the cognizance and, and awareness of these standards of care. Uh, the second area that 
I get more involved in is the requirements and demands on expert reports written by fire investigators, especially in both civil and criminal courts. And that emphasis is becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, in the past, a five-page report may have been sufficient, but now we're seeing reports 40, 50 pages long for single incidents, especially ones that uh, end up in litigation. And uh, so there are best practices being set forward for that. And, uh, and also, with expert reports, requires uh, some type of competent peer review. And that is besides just having the supervisor review uh, some of these reports. So it becomes very, very important. Uh, the next area that the uh, National Academy of Science has touched upon uh, is, the, uh, is the routine challenging now of fire investigators uh, through Daubert challenges or in limine motions in which um, uh, the credentials uh, or the conclusions of the investigator may be challenged uh, in court, and uh, and uh, investigators need to be prepared for these challenges. And the best way uh, to ward off or to successfully uh, defeat such a challenge is in the preparation of a comp- uh, comprehensive and competent expert report. Uh, the final area that that the uh, National Academy of Science area touches upon is in both education and certification. And uh, fire investigators now are, are meeting tougher uh, requirements for education, for certifications, and licensure in which they uh, uh, find very helpful in expert testimony. So the, uh, the requirement, uh, and I've been surprised in, in, uh, in talking to and providing training to uh, local, state, and federal groups, are the number of fire investigators that do not have certifications, such as a CFI or a CFEI, uh, or engineers that do not possess PEs, professional engineering licenses. And, uh, and I think that this will be the, uh, uh, the next big groundswell in the area of not only education, but also the certification of fire investigators in this country. Well, I want to tell you, I, I appreciate so much your, your contributions. Um, now, I'm going to, to mention something you didn't mention, and that uh, you have, uh, you've authored some, some very good treatises, including Forensic Fire Scene Reconstruction, along with Dr. DeHaan. And, um, and we appreciate your input, Doctor, and I want to thank you for, for being with us um, today. Uh, you, now, one more thing, you, you in, the, in the very two minutes, that one minute we have left, could you tell us what you see as, as an emerging issue in fire and police investigators in the next decade? Um, I see the, the major issues are basically the adherence to the guidelines and standards of care in the field. Uh, public, uh, especially in the public uh, sector, um, uh, Fire investigators should provide just an adequate investigation uh, across the board, uh, whether it be a, a simple uh, uh, garage fire or a uh, or a uh, million dollar chalet. The same level of effort and uh, professionalism should be applied to both types of investigations. Well, thank you, Dave. It's always good to talk to you, Doctor. Thank you. <laughs> And upcoming, we have Mr. Tom Fee, an investigator who has over 50 years' experience in fire investigation. Uh, See you after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Are you finding your frequency? 
It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks again for listening. We'd like to welcome investigator Tom Fee of Fee Investigations in California. Mr. Fee was a fire chief, police officer for over 25 years. He's been a private investigator for over 26 years. Hey, Tom, how you doing? I'm doing well, Donna. Thank you. Great, great. Listen, you're the training director for the California Conference of Fire Investigators. What general topics are presented at your conferences? Oh, a wide range. We try to cover all the cutting-edge topics that that are important to the investigators uh, in today's world. And as you know, that ranges all all the whole gamut. And there'll be classes on fire patterns. There'll be classes on uh, electrical. There'll be classes on interview and interrogation. Uh, and it. And the list just goes on. It's a it's a long list. Well, you've got so much experience, Tom, in both the public and private sector. Uh, in this fifty year career, uh, what do you think is the um, the biggest advancement in fire investigations? Well, I think without a doubt, it's the the, the uh, introduction or the development of NFPA nine twenty one. Prior to that, we were moving forward with uh, one generation telling the next generation what the facts were pertaining to fire patterns and and the the way fire burned and the results that you were to expect uh, at, uh, after the fire was extinguished, and when. 921 came out and the scientific method was introduced, the scientific committee or community got interested in fire investigation. And when that happened, we started looking at things uh, that we could and couldn't prove scientifically. And that takes us back to the things such as spalling and all the things that uh, 921 said were just myths, and there was a significant number of those myths that were there. We used to believe that just because there was a hole in the floor, there had to be gasoline on the on the the floor in order for that to happen. And so, the minute we saw a hole in the floor, that's what it was, and that was passed on from from one generation to the next as we learned our profession. Uh, 
And when 921 was introduced and the scientific community got interested, a lot of testing came forth, a lot of papers that had been written that we weren't even aware of all of a sudden came forth and changed the whole direction that the fire investigation community was going. Yeah, well, now, um, the scientific method was originally developed by Leonardo da Vinci, and but it wasn't applied necessarily to the field of fire investigation, but uh, it is now. And, and what's your belief about that? Well, I think it's, it's really crucial that we follow that method. Uh, and I think even though before it was introduced to us back in the early 1990s, Many of us were following the scientific method, but we just didn't realize it, or we were following certain portions of the scientific method. But if you follow it correctly, it, it allows you to lay out all the proper facts. It makes sure that you collect them. It makes sure that you identify all the hypotheses, not just the one that you think maybe is, is the cause, and then once you've identified all these hypotheses, each of them are put to the test, uh, and we see what fails and what doesn't fail, and it also allows for peer review so that other people can look and see that you covered all the steps and that you, you didn't leave something out or that you didn't have a bias uh, going in one direction versus another. And if that's followed properly, we end up reaching a much more reliable uh, conclusion at the end of uh, the examination. And that's what we want to do is come down to what happened uh, using the facts so that it can be properly backed up. Thank you for that. Uh, we've we've got a little bit over five minutes, and uh, I, I I had some other questions for you, but honestly, I just want to hear if you've got a, a interesting case study for us. Well, I do. I had mentioned to Mike that back in my career, I had conducted an investigation involving an arson homicide, and. The crux of this case is that there was an individual that was accused of and ended up pleading guilty to bank robbery. And he was sentenced. It was a Federal Reserve Bank, so it was a federal trial. And he, he was sentenced to 25 years in federal prison. And the night before he was to show up and turn himself in, he got a local uh, homeless person and he took him to a remote area and he ended up killing this person by hitting him in the back of the head with a steel bar. And then he set him up in his pickup to look like it was him. He left the ID in there and he put some a wine bottle in there and some cigarettes and he tried to make it look like he was in this truck and he was uh, drinking and smoking and subsequently it caught on fire and therefore he died in the fire and he wouldn't have to show up the next day. <laughs> he had told his current girlfriend that she was going to read something bad that happened to him in the newspaper, but don't worry about it because someday he would be back. Ah. And... Things went kind of bad with him. Uh, somebody picked him up as he was walking away from this site. And for one reason or another, he got cold feet. And he showed up and went to jail the next morning. Oh, by really? The time, by the time our investigation caught up to him, he was already on his way to Texas going to a federal prison. Uh. And when we tried to file this case in California, the district attorney's office decided to reject it because they said it'd be a waste of taxpayer money 
to bring him back to California because at that time in in uh, California, the sentence for homicide was seven years to life. And he said, even if we convict him, it's going to run concurrent to his current uh, case. He'll be in jail longer for that than he will the homicide. So they rejected it. We forgot about it and went on. And it became what later was identified by many police departments as a cold case. He did his time in the federal penitentiary. He was released. He became a suspect in another town here in California on another homicide. And as they were researching the files, they learned that we also had him listed on a cold case. And they called. We had a new police chief. Uh, recently in the position, and he was working cold cases at the time. So I got called 30 years after, right to the month, 30 years after the incident, and I was retired by then, and a couple new detectives had picked it up to follow up on it, and they asked if I remembered the case, and they pulled out all the facts, and they assembled some witnesses and myself, and we actually went to trial 30 years after the incident, and he was convicted of, uh, they couldn't convict him on the arson because of the statute of limitations, but he was convicted on the homicide, and the arson played a big role in it. So I testified both on how the individual died and being at the autopsy and in the comments made by the pathologist, and also on what caused the fire. That's it incredible. Was, it was that pretty is, obvious yeah. because he had poured gasoline both in the motor compartment and the passenger compartment and then set it on fire. Well, I want to thank you for, for being with us today and also with Dr. DeHaan and Dr. Eikhoff. Uh, Tom, we... Uh, We've you've worked a, a lot of cases together, and I want to thank you for for your uh, diligence. I mean, uh, there is no statute of limitations for murder, so uh, you've just proven that. And I'm glad he got his uh, his just desserts. Um, next next week, we're going to have Fire CSI. Now we're going to have Dr. Andrew Armstrong of uh, of Armstrong Forensic Laboratories in in uh, Arlington, Texas, and Dr. Armstrong is internationally known, and he was the one that actually had to, uh, to actually analyze the samples from the Waco incident as uh, both the uh, ATF and the FBI were involved in that incident, so they couldn't use their own laboratories. He is renowned, world-renowned. Also on that show is uh, investigator Bob Toth of Iris Investigations in Denver, and Bob is uh, will follow all of the uh, technological improvements as we have in fire investigations. And finally, Doc, uh, Rusty Valentine, who is a, a canine handler, an accelerant detection canine handler. Um, everybody likes dogs, and so we're, we do too. So I hope you will join us next week for Speaking of Fire. See you next week. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.